Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. We welcome you to Bite Into It, where we talk technology, computing, gaming, uh, very uh, important tweets, um, all of the big things um, that you might be doing in Melbourne while you wait for the rain to come down or not. Um, We're excited to be with you. Um, Tonight on the show, it is Dan Salmon. Dan, how are you? Good evening. I'm very well, Warren. Yourself? Yeah, not too bad. Did did you get um, rained on today or still waiting for that to happen? you, You know what? I actually did get a little bit of rain walking from my car to the studio. Uh, that's the only rain I've seen, um, mm. which is you know good for the people who might have been at risk for thunder of thunderstorm asthma. Hopefully, no one is uh, struggling out there. But um, uh, uh, these massive storms that were predicted do appear to not have appeared just yet. Mm. A few people did go shooting out of zooms today to kind of go running to their backyards, but um, I don't know. I've just been moving plants in and out trying to get them to the most moisture, but it hasn't really worked that well. Um, Joe Eaton, how are you doing? I am going really well today. Thank you. How are you? Um, yeah, well, also, um, not having a bad week in technology. I just did a dance from the, the bedroom to the to the other room, um, as you saw, but um, uh, it didn't let me down, which is good. Um, are if you having everyone a- missed the, the very near miss of a call dropping out <laughs> just before the theme tune was due to finish, it was high drama. It was. Mm. We, we, we managed to pull it together just before the start, so... Um, <laughs> Let's see if we'd last an hour. Better than call us a technology show for nothing. Let's just say that. <laughs> um, I'm with you also. Uh, I'm Warren Davies. And uh, it's a bumper show tonight. We've got um, some really good stuff to have a chat about. Um, we're always interested in, um, I guess, what local and interesting games are going on. And uh, shortly we'll be having a chat to Charlie Faulkner, um, director at uh, Origami Digital, about uh, an interesting uh, I guess, photo-based game, uh, which we're cool to explore. Um, it's a very interesting aesthetic, and I was going to try and describe it, but I wouldn't do it justice, so perhaps Tali will do a, a better job of that. But um, also later in the show, um, not too far from now, we're um, uh, having a conversation with uh, Tan Lei, who's uh, founder and CEO of Emotive. Um, they are working uh, in a very interesting space on the edge of um human-machine interaction and uh, devices that uh, interact with our brain. So it's a fascinating uh, conversation. Um, So stick around for that. But before that does happen, we do have um, a bit of news and and stuff going on um, that we thought um, you'd like to hear from us about. Um, Dan, obviously there's heaps heaps of been going on on the internet um, with the election and um, the sort of uh, unravelling of uh, of, uh, an administration. Um, You've got a a juicy bit of news there. I do. Um, Well, I mean, I I was about to make a glib joke about the fact that there hadn't been much going on, but clearly there has been... (laughs) A lot going on, on on the other side of the Pacific Ocean with regards to the United States election. But um, we all know that uh, the soon-to-be former president, Donald Trump, is fond of a little social media cesspit called Twitter. And uh, there has been some interesting research coming from the University of Western Australia, and it's been published in Nature Communications, uh, which basically says that... Um, that well, they've, they've researched... Uh, Donald Trump's tweets and his uh, tweeting patterns when things, uh, when news isn't really going his way. So uh, basically what they've found is that his uh, 
you know, un almost unprecedented reliance on Twitter um, is could has worked in his favour when you know, things like the uh, the Mueller investigation into his uh, various uh, dealings with Russia's or his his uh, campaign's dealings with Russia uh, were hitting their major crescendo. He was tweeting. Um, considerably more about other issues, which basically uh, diverted the kind of attention of media outlets from covering something that, you know, is detrimental to his presidency uh, to basically, you know, following what he's saying on Twitter. And he would, you know, you know I guess it's it's an interesting kind of, um, I suppose, analogue of that uh, well-known dead cat theory that I think Linton Crosby came up with uh, years ago, where basically you walk into a room and you throw a dead cat on the table and then everyone stops to what they're talking about and starts talking about how horrible it is that you've thrown a dead cat onto the table. And it basically, it's, it's kind of a circuit breaker, of a, like a distraction. And, you know, Twitter and Donald Trump's tweets have uh, worked to that ex uh, worked to that effect, uh, you know, for the last close to six years now. Um, and But we do have some, you know, data and some research behind it. So, yeah, very interesting stuff coming out of the University of Western Australia. Yeah, a lot of dead cats thrown. It, it is interesting. Um, I, I think if that conversation was happening here in Australia where we're... Um, I guess a little bit more um, sort of bearish about using government property to advance a personal opinion or, or point of view. Um, seems unlikely that, um, you know, uh, what would the equivalent here be? Uh, F FPM, FPM, O, Commonwealth of Australia. It's uh, a it's a long one, <laughs> but. Um, yeah, I, I think um, I think putting putting your own interests first and uh, and using um, uh, I guess the platform that um, an, an elected leader um, of two hundred and fifty million odd people mm. to to kind of advance your interests or your business interests or, or sort of um, uh, influence the the media um, cycle that you'd like to see is um, it's fairly um, poor behaviour. Yeah, uh, I guess I guess we got used to it fairly quickly, but. Well, um, it, it yeah, was, we'll, see, we'll see less of that. It was it was interesting seeing in recent days, um, you know, after the election was called by various media outlets, how Twitter kind of have really gone gung ho on the fact checking and the kind of you know caveats on Donald Trump's tweets. And I, I, I'm I've not seen too much of it on Facebook, but like it's just really interesting seeing how they're trying to walk back their kind of tacit. Uh, acceptance of all the crap that he's been spewing for the last six years. Uh, in Certainly the, in, taken them a long time. Yeah, like, well done, guys. <laughs> you know what, we're two days after the election and all of a sudden you start caring. You get no points for that. I, I've noticed they have, um, yeah, very much been on top of it. I get a lot more kind of um, subtle kind of... Uh, so when I go to share news articles or um, do the, the the hideous retweet function now, uh, it asks me, do I want to read it before I share it? I'm like, no, you know, this seems good. Let's get it out there. Um, Yo, don't so, be part of the problem. <laughs> part of the problem. I, I do, yeah. That that is um, that is kind of like lazy, lazy resharing of stuff. But... Um, uh, I am mindful about the sources, so I do put a, a bit of faith in the sources. But um, but anyway, I got a funny one this morning. Perhaps they're overdoing it where uh, I'm a big one for cat content and some random follower posted something and, and Twitter was like, is this right for you? Do you want this? I'm like, yes, I do. It's Wednesday. Give me the cats. <laughs> this, this cat may not be uh, counted in the final tally. Yeah, but I was all bleary-eyed and sort of brushing my teeth going, hmm, do I want this cat on a Wednesday? I was like, get out of here. Yes, give it to me. Um, uh, another another thing that was um, resolved recently was, uh, I guess, the uh, data data visualization of how we look at 
um, where support uh, is and isn't um, for uh, the two major parties uh, in the US. Um, if you if you search land doesn't vote, people do. Um, it has, uh, uh, to my mind, been known as um, that particular thing to solve. Um, so this, this issue actually, um, if you've been watching what became known as the map show over the past four or five days, um, it did pop up, I think, on uh, Saturday, maybe early Saturday as we are waiting for things to happen. Um, uh, so Lara Trump, um, around the time of the impeachment hearings in, in 2019, um, uh, posted a, a, an image of um, the United States based on um, uh, states, and uh, elected representatives in those states, which at the time showed a fairly healthy dose of Republican red across the country. And she said, you know, try and impeach this, suggesting that, you know, America was Republic sort of from coast to coast. Challenge accepted, uh, said Karim Duab, um, and uh, he works at a data visualisation company called Jetpack, uh, who came across the post. And um, there's some great uh, examples of uh, how you can change... Um, uh, what is effectively that erroneous information? Um, as as he said, um, land land doesn't vote; people do. So um, when you look at uh, a county or a state, um, you can't look at it as either a blue state or a red state or you know any other state for that matter. And they've been working with playing with uh, purple as a visualization to kind of suggest the the intensity of you know on a um, binary kind of um, uh, scale, you know, left or right, blue and red. Um, where does it sit? which is a little bit more accurate perhaps. But um, it's interesting when you actually flip it and show the, the population centres and where the people on the map actually voted, um, it really just does actually change the colour of it and it doesn't look like... Because I, I guess if you're familiar with the voting patterns here, um, the, the coasts are generally very supportive of, of Democrat generally and, and the centre of America um, generally swings more um, Republican. So because those states are, um, are a lot larger and also a lot smaller in terms of population centres, it's very easy to get the wrong idea. So... Um, we might tweet that out. Um, it is it is actually interesting and even just seeing kind of as things started to flip because it's this kind of you're understanding because you, you've got so much complex information and, and there's so much going on that you want to just look at something and go, is there more more of this colour, more of that colour? And you think you know what's going on, but you, you actually don't. So um, hopefully at the next election um, uh, that will that will persist and maybe we'll see that instead of which way states are going in terms of colour. Mm. It's, um, it's also a mesmerising um, gift too, so... I've yeah. just been watching it for the last three minutes and it just goes back and forth. It's quite quite mesmerising. <laughs> um, Joe, you've been geeking out to a bit of um, Apple stuff. Um, what, what's going on there? Yeah, so Apple have just announced a new range of Macs, um, but it was probably more of an announcement of a new chip. Um, they're no longer going to be using um, Intel chips in the Macs. They're, they've got a new Apple Silicon M1 chip. So they're saying this new chip brings CPU performance about three times faster and graphic performance about five or six times faster. And um, interestingly, as I listen to my um, MacBook Air fan going hard out right now, apparently these new ones are silent and fanless. Um, apparently, oh, it looks like the price is going up for the MacBook Air quite a bit. Um, but, yeah, interesting that they're moving away from Intel and doing their own thing. It is. I, I remember the days when they first went to Intel and it was just like, oh, wow, you can run all, yeah. those, all that software that's only Windows compatible on a Mac now. It seemed scandalous. I know. Um, they've been with it for so long and kind of Intel Intel was the chip and it has been the chip for, um, for decades. So to be kind of moving away from that, um, uh, it is the changing of the guard. 
For sure. Mm, absolutely. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Hey, uh, summer is coming. Um, we have it on good advice. And if you're going to be putting feet up, um, doing a little bit of nothing, um, a different kind of nothing uh, in Melbourne to the nothing we have been doing um, over the past seven months, you might be want to be playing some games. And we're now joined by uh, Director of Aragami Digital, uh, who have been making said games, uh, Tali Faulkner. Tali, thanks for taking time to have a chat to us tonight. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me on. Um Origami Digital, and I guess the um, uh, it's a is it a follow up game? Is that fair to say, uh, Umarangi Generation? Uh, so Umarangi Generation came out about midway through this year, and it's kind of about like the bushfires that happened here in Australia. Uh, and what we just released was a DLC called uh, Macro, and it's sort of like it's like it's a photography game, right? So you, the main thing you do is take photos, and what the DLC adds in is sort of twofold, like. One side of it is adding more sort of like pro features, like, you know, being able to adjust your aperture and shutter speed and things like that. Um, and the other side is sort of like, um, sort of like recontextualizing um, the sort of jet set radio influence to be more about what's happening today. Um, so does everyone here know what jet set radio is? Uh, it's Yeah, pretty, it seems I'm, super like that. I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't. So, so maybe if you want to uh, explain it yeah, for the you know, so listeners out there. Jet Set Radio was a game that came out in like the early 2000s, and it was sort of like a you know really cool-looking, like funky um, rollerblading game where you were like a graffiti punk who would like uh, roll around this like sort of semi-futuristic version of like Tokyo called Tokyoto. And, like, you would spray paint and, like, the cops would come after you and, like, try to shut it all down. And they were, like, you know, doing all this stuff. Um, <clears throat> so, like, this macro DLC kind of takes a lot of those ideas and sort of brings them forward to, like, where we are right now with, like, the cops and things like that. Um, and, and sort of, like, uh, makes it that, like, those actions are more, I guess, relevant to, you know, the protests and stuff that we've been seeing, um, as well as, like, ramping up i guess the um intensity of like what cops you know violent acts are these days um like i'm probably not alone in saying that probably the thing that i'm sort of burnt into my skull from the last six months was seeing 20 um armored like hummers just like drive down a highway and seeing that video on twitter where they'd called the national garden to um you know the george floyd protest um and yeah i think it's it's just interesting that like jet set radio sort of kind of joked a little bit that like the you know cops would use like apache attack helicopters but like now we're seeing that um and yeah so this this game's dlc sort of takes that and uh ramps it up i think a little bit even further um yeah can i ask about the name umarangi yeah so um i i gave that name Kind of, you know, because Umarangi is kind of like the red sky, you know, the, yeah. the sunset kind of thing. Um, and I chose that name for two reasons. One was um, when we had these bushfires here in Australia, I think the scariest thing around all of that was seeing people become sort of complacent around the sky being red. Not the red sky that you see, you know, on the sunset, but more the red sky that you see from, you know, the fire in the distance and the smoke carrying the light. Um and so, you know, this game's kind of about 
the last generation has to watch that kind of stuff happen. Not necessarily the fires, but like the ineptitude of neoliberalism where they can't actually do anything about it, right? Um, like it's too late to act on it. Like, you know, the big thing I kind of think about is uh, these bushfires that we ha had here in Australia, we knew about them for 20 years or we knew to, to act 20 years ago. And, um, you know, the, the government and everything like that didn't do anything, right? Like the, there's this stupid debate if climate change is even real. Um, and I think the idea is that in this game, it's there's a similar, like, um, I, call, I guess I'll say natural disaster that occurs. And um, it's very clear that it's like, well, at that point, there's literally no way of stopping it because it's like, um, <laughs> it's, it's a little bit more extreme than a bushfire, I'll just say that. But um, the idea is that, you know, the neoliberal system behaves exactly the same way. Like, uh, something I think that's kind of funny is that the same people who had been denying climate change for the last 10 years, um, all of a sudden when COVID came around, they denied COVID even existed, right? It's like the same beats, the same script, just like swapping out the the uh, the, the players and, and, you know, things in that space. Um, and so, like, I guess the game um, takes a, like, I guess hard political stance on that stuff because I think most games try to play this, like, apolitical tightrope that, you know, is a, like, it's either a really, like, lukewarm, you know, not interesting discussion of that topic, or it's just, like, behaves like it doesn't even exist, you know what I mean? Um, or the worst case, I think, is that um, it doesn't push back against things that do need to be pushed back against. Like, um, when fascism is, like, portrayed in video games, oftentimes um, we get the sterilised version of fascism, where um, you don't actually see a fascist society, you just see someone who's bad because they're crazy or, oh, there's an evil spell on them. Or, you know what I mean? Like this idea that this stuff doesn't exist, um, you know, and, and likewise to that, then when it comes to like games portraying resistance media, they're always referencing like 20th century struggles that were inherently like a leftist thing. Um, but they take all the left wing stuff out of it and instead make it out like that, you know, anyone could stand up against fascists or, or you know, that the, the good, you know, gun toting American guy um, from the South would totally be like, you know, an anti-fascist. It's like, no, nah, I don't think so. Um, yeah. So <laughs> sorry, I must, must have rambled for a bit there. That's okay. Shake your fist. Um, I am so here for all of that. Yeah. Can I ask, I, I don't know too much about um, the background for sort of photo-based games and just kind of um, cruising around, taking in, thinking about what's going on and, and sort of taking a snapshot. Um, my partner was recently playing on the other day and just cruising around and just um, doing this. This is great for radio, obviously, but doing this with her phone and just kind of like looking around, taking photos of stuff, looking for leather jackets and bears and stuff. What's yeah, right. aside from the one that you mentioned? Kind of, is this a thing at the moment, or is it um, um, kind of niche? Or well, one thing that I found, I was talking to someone the other day, and they're a, they're a journalist as well, and they said um, <clears throat> that apparently in gaming, a couple of years ago, there was just a huge push for these AAA games to shove in a photo mode in any way, right? So photo mode's sort of similar to photography or it sort of has a little bit of photography elements, but it was, like, done from a completely cynical way because it was like, no, no, the sole purpose of this isn't, like, we want a photo mode. It's that people will post about it on social media. Um, but I guess, like, in terms of photography games, like games about photography, there really isn't many. Um, so there was like a big hole when making this game. Um, like obviously there's like, I guess a difference between like, 
um, it's it's like ARGs, like augmented reality games, where you're you know taking a photo with your phone of real life, and then there's sort of you know your games where you're sort of like an active participant in a world kind of thing. Um, you know, the, the big one I think that we probably all know is Pokemon Snap, right? We all remember that. Um, it, it's sort of like Pokemon Snap, I think, you know, it's obviously got limitations because it's a Nintendo 64 game, but, like, the idea of this game was to take kind of what worked with that, but, like, move it more into, like, less about what Professor Oak wants to see and more about, like, what you want to see. Um, so when, like, you're playing this game, it's kind of like, you know, there's like a line that says like, hey, we're all artists here, art subjective, like, you know, it's going to be like, just just, just take what you like and, and things like that, um, which is kind of like why this game sort of has um, its like objective, you know, like in every game there's an objective. This game kind of says, it's got like the where's Wally approach, which is like, hey, find me this specific thing in this environment, right? And there might be like three ways to take it or like a million ways to take it because it might be something like, take a photo of seven birds. All right, there might be like 16 in the level. So how do you take a photo of seven birds? Well, that's actually like your creative um, input going into it then. And like what you think is a good photo ends up being what the answer is. Um, and... I think it's really interesting because, like, we've seen people play the game and they start off being, like, you know, because I think most people are bashed into their heads quite young that they're not creative. You know, school has a really good job of, of saying, no, nah, no drawing on your book. No, you know, you're here to whatever. Anyway, um, you know, we've seen players who start this off and they go, oh, I'm not creative. The game's just making me feel like I'm creative, right? And then, like, by the end, they're just, like, not even doing the objectives anymore. They're just taking photos for the, you know, creative joy of it. And then some of them have actually come out the other end and they've said like, oh, I want to pick up an, a camera in real life now because I enjoyed this so much. So, you know, I think uh, there's, there's something, I guess, a little bit special about this one because it's like, it essentially acts as a tutorial on like how to use a camera. And like when players end up going all the way to the end, they sort of have picked up all the, I guess, bits of knowledge where they can know like okay that's how that lens sort of works this is how like you know focusing the lens and stuff like that works um so yeah uh i hope i answered your question there i'm curious about the um uh about the kit that you get the, the lenses and equipment um did you guys see that um tweet um tweet thing going around uh, maybe about a month ago where it's the drop when you kill me from a game and you have to show the kind of like four objects that you pick up when uh, your character was oh, yeah. killed in the show. Um, that was so much fun. I spent so much time thinking about that stuff. Yeah. But what, what what can you? Yeah, what kind of stuff can you get? What can you unlock and pick up in the game? So um, there's. Let me count them up. There, there's uh, roughly thirteen lenses um, in the game. Mm. Uh, so you've got you know like just your standard, you know, uh, you know eighteen thirty five kind of thing. Uh, 1855, sorry. And then you've got, you know, your telephotos, you've got your wide angles, you've got your fish eyes, um, and then you've got sort of ones like an ultra-wide angle lens that, you know, can see further than what the human eye can. Oh, um, the, the real estate lens. Yeah. Yes, the, the real estate lens. Makes it look like your, ha your house is nice and big. Um, <laughs> one of the one of the cool things we got to add in the macro DLC was actually the Game Boy camera. Or, or sorry, the legally distinct Game Boy camera. Um, <laughs> um, that, that was that was a cool little thing to, to sort of pay a little bit of homage to, you know, Pokemon Snap and, and, and that kind of stuff. But, like, um, as well as, like, having um, lenses, you've also got, like, equipment that you would probably find in a photographer's bag or sort of, like, for example, you can get, like, a flash box, and that's the only way you can 
enable flash. So like, you know, the character actually like slides it on kind of thing. Um, and then, you know, you can get other things like, uh, it's like this, this camera is sort of like uh, SLR where you have to um, rack it back and forth to, you know, load the next bit of film in, but you can unlock something that just makes it so it behaves more like a digital camera where you don't have to do that. And that way, like you can stay, you know, looking down the camera and things like that. Um, but one of the cool things we added into the macro DLC was like uh, spray paint and rollerblades and the spray paint that you use has like neon paint in it. So if you spray paint behind someone, you'll get like a nice bloom, like angelic halo around their head. Um, but also like you can just spray paint like whatever you want in the environment and then take a photo of it. Um, and so like, I think that, that that's like a really interesting thing to have in there because it just completely increases like the amount of creative possibility in the, um, you know, in the game at that point. That, that does sound awesome, and it's kind of inspiring me to probably dig out the old camera. <laughs> it, 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 actually, it's funny that um, you kind of brought in that, uh, I suppose, the, the lens SLR kind of um, aesthetic to it, because, I mean, there's probably, I would say, few people who would pick up the game who would even remember what that was like. Yeah. <laughs> well, something I... Um kind of think about is i have a bit of a camera collection some that like my granddad gave me um one of them's this one it's called a ludel 2 and it's like this like for me it was like it was like seeing an alien artifact but it was so common back in the day it's like a camera where you'd look down through it like you don't look through it like what you think of a normal camera it's like you'd look down um oh, into like, it like an right? old school like camera obscura kind of thing well, well no no it's like it's like you're looking down into a microscope when you take the photo oh yeah, it's really weird, but it's this weird thing where, like, everything is there that you'd see on a modern camera. It's just positioned in all these strange places. Like, it has two, um, like, things you can wind at the front. One's for, you know... Like, like an old Rolex Flex. It might be. I, yeah. Like, from what I've heard, it's kind of like it was the Russian um, knockoff, but, like, a lot of people in New Zealand got them because they were, like, you know, cheaper, you know, like, buy a little bit. Um but yeah, it was just this really interesting thing seeing stuff like that. And I think like, you know, for me looking at it, because it was like you had to wind it in a really weird way to load the film in. Um, it's, it's just like more fun, I guess. Like, um, you know, I've got a digital SLR and I do photography like part time to sort of make ends meet and stuff. But like, um, you know, I, I think there's, you know, when you're talking about a game, sometimes I think just the, you know, inferior technology or whatever is like a little bit more fun to play around with yeah absolutely for sure it makes you a little bit more creative definitely uh tali it, it does sound like an absolutely fantastic um way to spend an evening an afternoon a weekend um i'm i'm gonna do it myself um it, it, it's out there it's it, people are able to kind of jump on and play around with the umarangi generation yeah, so it's on Switch. Uh, sorry, not Switch. It's on Steam at the moment. Um, but we are going to be doing a Switch version later. Uh, and you'll just be able to get that through the eShop. Um, and, yeah, so, like, I think one of the cool things is going to be when it comes on Switch, we're going to actually make it that the gyro is going to uh, work, like, with the game so that, like, you holding your Nintendo Switch will feel like you're holding a camera and what you do with your hands will translate to the game. So Oh, that's so cool. That does sound yeah. cool. 
De definitely worth checking out. Um, we have been speaking to Tally Fortner of Origami Digital. Thank you so much for your time, Tally. No worries. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Warren, you would like to introduce our next bit. Uh, I do have another bit uh, for us. Um, uh, recently, uh, the founder and CEO of Emotive uh, was, um, uh, I guess, in Australia uh, having a chat um, as part of a local event and, and conversation series. And uh, Tan made some time to have a bit of a chat with uh, me um, about uh, what Emotive is and, um, uh, I guess, what they're doing. Um, she's one of hundreds of, of kind of whip smart exports from Australia. Um, they're currently based in San Francisco. Um, she's a former uh, Young Australian of the Year. And she also sits on the Global Future Council on Neurotechnologies at the World Economic Forum um, and is really, I guess, pushing um, uh, humans um, as to how we think about uh, our brain, longevity of the brain, and uh, I guess um, how can we um, create a, a better interface um, to get... Um, to get out what's in there and also to, uh, I guess, feed into it. Um, so we had a lot to talk about and uh, I've just sort of grabbed a few things. Um, we started talking about um, why she started exploring this space back in the day, sort of what was her interest in and uh, what got her excited. I have, um, for the, as long as I remember, I've always been fascinated about the human brain because it really defines who we are, our perceptions of the world around us. Um, and, and so, and, and being you know, from an Asian family where your mom is forcing you to, you know, do well and focus on cultivating that brain. <laughs> uh, it's really important. It was always something I was really um, interested in. But as I um, matured as an adult, I really um, became even more fascinated in the brain because of a few um, key things, right? The first is from a macro um, level, at a macro level, we are living much longer lives thanks to advances in, in, in technology that is extending human life well beyond what our biological um, age should be. And, um, and at the same time, the human brain as a system isn't built to last 100 years. Right? So as we extend human life and, and extend our body's um, ability to, to live longer lives, the, the need to kind of preserve the brain is going to be more and more important. Um, and then at another level, um, you know, neurological impairments affect 2 billion people in the world today. So um, if you think about it, that's one in every three persons out there is somewhat affected by some sort of neurologically based condition. And so um, it's, it's a big problem set. In economic terms, it's uh, $2 trillion every year in economic impact. And yet the modalities for how we actually study the brain are very, very limited. And so I, I saw a real opportunity there to change how we gather data about the brain, how we analyse the brain, because we can make some real meaningful improvements. Mm. No, that's great. I think... Uh... I think some of the, the use cases, which I'm sure we'll talk about and, and sort of in connection to the, the, the talk that you're doing for Melbourne Conversations will, will come up, uh, especially around, um, you know, people with um, health conditions or limited mobility or, or what have you. Um, I do want to ask as well, I was having a chat having a chat with my friend last night about, oh, what conversations would you have with, uh, with Tan about this? All right. 
So obviously we, we can do it and there, there are good use cases for it. But if someone asked you, well, why do we need that? Um, I was, she was talking about when um, their family first got mobile phones and they, they were involved in, in making mobile phones. And she had that with one of her mum's friends and her mum's friend said, well, why do you need a mobile phone? Why wouldn't you just go and, and use a phone at the home and, and just call someone? Well, why do we need, um, uh, I guess, uh, neuroscience? and neural interface? Neural interface. Yeah, I think it's a really great question and it's hard to imagine um, why you, you need one. But at the end of the day, if you think about um, the information system that exists out there in the world now, right? Our world is now powered by information, um, and all of that is digital. Our brain, on the other hand, is an analog system. And so if you want to bridge this biological system with the digital world, you need an interface that will talk to it and, um, and therefore be able to interface with it. And so the potential to unlock the connection and to create a seamless interaction between our physical biological beings and the information system um, out there is going to unlock so much potential um, that would not be able to be realized if we didn't have a neural interface. I, I find it very hard to imagine a world in the future where we would still be interacting in very cumbersome ways, right, with, with keyboards and mouse, mice, and all of these very simplistic um, analogs for control when uh, our brain can can be that that bridge and so i think it's um it's definitely the first steps towards that but once we're able to unlock the the ability to interface directly with the human brain then it opens up the whole whole spectrum of application and possibilities that otherwise would not be uh, available to us mm. with any other input you know yeah. mechanism yeah, interesting. Uh, uh, I suppose I should give a little bit of background here as to what kind of um, devices we're talking about. So um, they've got, uh, I guess, three three core um, bits of kit that you can um, use. Um, you've got um, what they call the most credible and cost-effective kind of mobile EEG uh, brainware device. So you know when you see folks with the kind of the little um, nodes kind of on their forehead and kind of around their scalp and stuff and they're like, we're going to read your brainwaves. You've got one of those with a, a fancy black headband. Um, you've got something that's a little bit more uh, uh, sort of low profile and then you've kind of got the, the wraparound ear version as well. So when we started talking about this, I was imagining stuff that people would just kind of like slip on and um, uh, and sort of forget they had it on, almost like Joe's wearing glasses at the moment. I quite often wear glasses during the day, the sort of thing that you just kind of walk around in and you're getting pinged by like emails and messages and notifications and it's quite a, an intrusive kind of experience. But, um, yeah, well, what do you two think about the idea that um, this thing can kind of pick up on something that's going on there and it's a, a better or different way to control um, how your brain um, perceives the world and, and um, makes decisions on it? <laughs> Dan and I are looking at each other like it's it's like it's it's such a it, I mean it, we've always thought about you know this idea of you know con the the kind of converse thing of controlling things with you know your brain as well as kind of the the I suppose the getting into your mind and I guess I suppose it's not it's not it's not necessarily reading your thoughts yet but I don't know yeah the way it was described to me because I was you know, pun intended, just trying to get my head around this, oh, boom, um, boom. as as it can do 
it can do it can understand sort of very simple impulses towards particular things so if you work really hard you can train one of these devices to move a cursor or to you know drag something from your desktop into a folder or very basic things like that mm. like i really want to shift something or push something or you know i'm feeling really uncomfortable so it's very it's very rudimentary uh, at this stage would it, would it would it take the kind of i suppose the when when you mentioned that kind of thing like the kind of brain training that um you're kind of talking about it brings to mind stuff like neuroplasticity and you know uh recovery from stroke for example where people need to kind mm. of you know retrain their brain to tell their certain parts of their body to do things in ways that they, have, they hadn't done previously is that, is that kind of what they're getting at or i suppose it's yeah, a bit more complicated I than that. It working yeah it's i, I think um she, she did spend a bit of time talking about how our, our body life is extending, you know, 80, 100, 110 years, like, you know, what's possible. Um, I think we talked about sort of people do claim that there's people who are living today who don't need to die, who won't necessarily die. They can constantly regenerate and, you know, um, live on. But she did point out that brains brains are not meant to live past, you know, initially the average lifespan for a human was, you know, 30 years or 35 years. And we're now through, you know, medicine and um, science and, and nutrition and so forth, living much longer. But the brain is not far from its peak at, you know, 90 and 100 and, and so forth. So um, being able to help people and work with people um, if they're living longer but um, have more sort of, I guess, limited capacity to express what their, their brain is trying to do. And also for people, um, like imagine imagine Stephen Hawking was something like this rather than sort of prodding away to keyboard or something like that in his early life, just kind of um, having a bit more control over uh, expression and so forth. Mm. It, yeah. it, it opens up a whole lot of possibilities there. Yeah. So we followed on with, um, I, I guess we wanted to sort of get into that um, a little bit more. And um, I did ask, like, can we actually read people's thoughts with this technology? Um, and, and what does this even mean from, like, a, an ethical and a, and a privacy point of view? Um, I did want to know. You're not able to read thoughts, at least not today, um, and not in the way that we would associate, like, fleeting thoughts and things like that. It would be, it would require such intricate resolution of the brain in order to really achieve that level of, of granularity in, in deciphering specific thoughts. But what we're able to do is to decode very simple commands based on training a machine learning algorithm to pick out very specific patterns that you teach it to recognize. So if you think about, um, just a, if I can convey just a very simple brain computer interface where you might want to um, move your cursor in, in a multi-dimensional space. Um, the idea would be, let's say you wanna push something forward, Essentially, you're teaching the machine learning algorithms how you visualize or think about the, the thought of moving something forward. And the machine learning algorithm picks up the patterns associated with that thought. And so you actually have to come up with an idea in your mind that's distinct enough um, that you can conjure up again repeatedly because the machine learning algorithms isn't able to discern all of your fleeting thoughts. It's able to recognize that distinct pattern that you're showing it when you think about moving something forward. And then when you want to trigger that command again, you want to be able to conjure up those same ideas in order to trigger the same patterns again for the machine learning algorithm to be able to classify though that collection of patterns 
for that command. And so there are very specific and distinct limitations, as you can imagine, associated with that. And therefore, from a brain-computer interface standpoint, uh, you know, it is quite rudimentary in terms of the, the levels of control that you have. You wouldn't be able to fully replace, for example, today, not at least not with a non-invasive technology, you wouldn't be able to really replace a steering wheel because of that sort of very fine-tuned control that you would be able to have um, or, or, you know, have that sort of control to manipulate, um, I don't know, even an apple in your hand, that, that kind of motion is very, very difficult to replicate um, in, in that level of detail. But if you start to think about, um, you know, taking the, the semantic control together with some of the other types of um, mental states that we can pick up, then it becomes really interesting because you can start to understand, you know, what, when you're actually paying attention, when you're becoming distracted, um, what actually appeals to you, what your preferences are. And so you can start to create computing systems that become very intelligent and far more dynamic and um, responsive to the needs of the individual. And I think that that's where the brain-computer interface becomes really powerful because it's not just about um, so when I talked about the information system that is available out there, imagine a world where your computing device is somewhere on the periphery of your, of your head mm. and you're outside in the real world. It's no longer just in your phone um, and, and in your pocket, but you're outside, you're, you're, you're observing the environment and you're, you're the, the, the system recognizes that you're confused. It's able to then trigger based on location where you are, um, prompts that then allow you to kind of say, okay, well, you're in a different country, prompt up the, the language um, that it picks up, or if, you're, if it looks like you're trying to go somewhere, it, it recognises that your brain is, is confused, it then kind of prompts up information to tell you there and then. So it, it, the idea is that these, these interfaces becomes more of a humanistic intelligence. So we achieve a system that becomes um, a supportive system to the human um, using a combination of AI with biosensing to create um, this modality where you and the environment is kind of seamless. Right, the, the, you know, you, you don't feel like a separate embodiment, but you and your environment are extensions of the same thing. And so the, the, the environment perceives your experience and it's able to respond accordingly. And I think some of those, those humanistic systems that will be able to be created based on the technologies that we are advancing today um, will really be very empowering for individuals. I reckon that's, um, that's some fascinating stuff there, Warren. Um. I, I do kind of like the idea that because uh, there's when someone first says to me, "Think about the the information systems that are out there and how much we have going on." Um, I don't necessarily get excited about, "Hey, um, just plug yourself into those information systems," because I think the way they grab our attention and ask for us to interact and put stuff in is is very clunky and it's very noisy and it's certainly not very calm. I think that's what, been one of the great things about lockdown is you can kind of look around and go, "Hey, how much of this interruption and kind of distraction and noise do I want?" And, you know, I, I think at the moment less would be good. But I do like the idea that um, people who are thinking about um, uh, what what does the brain want and what can the brain work with is a really nice kind of limiting um, framework to kind of go with. Like you're outside, there's a lot of stimulus, it's really stressful, there's, you know, cats and dogs and kids and cars and bikes and stuff like that. So, like, what, what do you want and what kind of feedback do you need? Like what's... Mm. Um, 
I, I, I found it interesting where she, um, where Tam was talking about um, the, you know, the training aspect of it. Like you, you the software recognizes certain brain waves, and that's how it knows that you, you want it to, you know, move that pencil across the table. But whether that is, you know, the same across the board, or whether each person has to train the AI to do the, do it in their own context, and then it becomes a very bespoke, very kind of um, uh, personalized thing. It's like your own your own servant <laughs> before it it's takes your, over your own language it's between your own language. yourself and the and the interface and the interface. Oh. Is it a bit beautiful? It is. It's it, it, going down the falling in love with a computer path, which you know. <laughs> Um, do you have any concerns about it? Things that kind of make you think, "Oh, geez, Christ!" Um, oh. You know, we we need to figure that stuff out. Plenty. Every, I, every, everything we do here is one step towards the singularity. <laughs> I, I do have. Um, I, I was noticing while she was talking about some of those things, I had an uneasiness in my stomach, and I was trying to push past that to to understand. I, I, I think I think it's important to embrace that unease. Yeah. Um, like it's we we, you know, as people who you know know and trust largely technology, it can be you can fall into that trap of being gung ho about everything being fantastic, but you've there's yeah. gotta be a there's gotta be a level of I don't want to say cynicism or skepticism, but just wariness. You just need to be wary just of always it. Yeah. being willing to question. Yeah. And, and 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 I think, you know, it's um it's something that we haven't necessarily seen in contexts where they need to be, but um, you know, it's it's an important skill to have. Yes. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. We got we, we got a little a little bit of stuff for people to get involved with this week. We do. There are uh, a few things going on. Um, we're getting into the um, the silly season, of course. So there are um, a, a few um, soirees and uh, events. So more on the social side of things. Um, I do have one for uh, Hackernest uh, November Global Tech Social uh, Catch Up. Um, you can jump onto Meetup and look up uh, Hackernest, but um, I guess it's one of the bigger ones uh, going around in Melbourne. About looks like about 170, 180 uh, signed up for this, so maybe I don't know, 90 or 100 might pop along. Um, if you're interested in tech, you'll meet uh, hackers, hacks, designers, data scientists, hardware engineers, developers, venture capitalists, venture communists. Um, that would be a good chat around Christmas time. Entrepreneurs, killer robots. Sepia files, social media files, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it sounds like a very Melbourne um, tech event uh, to get along to. Particularly that venture uh, communist bit. Oh, yeah. Um, venture communist. Would either of you like to speculate what that actually involves? I've never seen that. <laughs> I've never heard that term before in my life, but it intrigues me ever so slightly. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd like to know how it works. If we can, if we can just change all of these things, we'll all be better off. Well, you you know uh, what it possibly is. It's possibly like a hark back to kind of the cyberpunk days of the sixties and seventies. Mm. Back, back when people, you know, had ideals and money, they didn't think that what they were doing would ever actually make them any money. Yeah, I was. I've been watching a, a show on Apple Plus that's um, set in a, a hacker commune. I was like, did I just miss the hacker communes? Were, were there many of them? Was this the only one? Are they still I, going on? I don't know. I just miss our, our promised tech utopian future that never eventuated. There's still time. There's still time. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Still time. Speaking of time, uh, thank you very much to our guests, uh, Tali and Tan. Um, it was great to chat to Tali about um, uh, a wonderful game. Um, we will share a little bit more um, on that. Um, uh, he was from Origami Digital and uh, Umurangi Generation. Um, also, uh, thanks to Tan for making time uh, to have a chat to us uh, about uh, Emotive. Um, uh, thanks very much to uh, our support crew, Elizabeth McCarthy, um, Izan Saif, um, who does our podcasting. Joe and Dan, you guys have been heaps of fun. It's good to see your faces. You too. It's been, it's been a great fun. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or bite into its Twitter or Facebook accounts.